The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of November 11th, 2019. On this week's show, Banner Society's Spencer Hall will be here to discuss LSU's win over Alabama. Yes! Yes. That was Josh. It wasn't me. Had to back away from the microphone to blow out your headphones. Slate's Joel Anderson will also join us to chat about the NCAA enforcing the wondrous ideals of amateurism by going after Ohio State football star Chase Young and Memphis basketball phenom James Wiseman. Finally, the New York Times' Lindsey Krauss will talk with us about Mary Kane, the running prodigy who just went public with allegations of abuse by Nike and legendary running coach Alberto Salazar. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Go Tigers. Stefan. Oh, hi, Stefan. Sorry. It's inside my own head there. Big weekend for for you, yeah. And that and then MLS Cup on Sunday night. You must have been just riding high all weekend. I sort of blacked out for uh, the rest of Saturday and Sunday, but I'll take your word for it. It's a good game. Something else happens. 69,000 people in Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) We can talk about this more at our live show. We can continue this colloquy. It is on December 3rd. It's a Tuesday in Washington, D.C. at the Hamilton Live. We are going to have some great guests. Good conversation. I had kind of a weird idea that Stefan endorsed that we're going to try out at the live show. Slate.com slash live is where you get tickets and information. Again, that is December 3rd, Hamilton Live in Washington, D.C. Slate.com slash live. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On Saturday in Tuscaloosa, LSU beat Alabama 46 to 41, and it really felt good. Didn't it? It did. It was the Tigers' first win against the Tide since 2011. LSU scored more points in the first half, 33, than they'd scored in the full game. And I did this research on Wikipedia. Then they'd scored in the full game in 81 of their 83 previous all-time meetings against Alabama. I was happy. Louisiana was happy. Coach O was happy. Let's hear what Ed Ogeron had to say in the locker room after the game. Change the narrative. You said that? Yes, sir. We're going to beat their ass in recruiting. We're going to beat their ass every time they see us. You understand that? Yes, sir. Roll that What? Fuck you. Joining us now is Spencer Hall, editor-at-large for Banner Society, and our senior Cajun locker room expletives correspondent. Welcome, Spencer. That wasn't just the LSU team cheering. That was America. Oh, yeah. No, the entire nation behind our beloved Bayou Bengals, who, should they maintain this level of dominance for three years, will become the villain. That's fine. (laughs) That's absolutely fine. I understand if you haven't been to LSU for the full tailgating cultural experience that is game day there and that is the LSU cosmos, you might think that eventually they will become the villain. I will never regard them as such. I don't care. They can beat me by 40 and I'll leave there with a smile on my face because they take great joy in everything that they do, sometimes even losing. And they took great joy in dismantling Alabama's defense to an extent that no one else has done. I know we've seen them lose, but we've never seen anybody 
any single player score four times on them, which is what Clyde's Edward Elair managed to do against them. Three on the ground. Uh, I believe he caught one as well. No one's done that. That's never happened to a Nick Saban team at Alabama. Yeah, and the motivation here was just insane. It's been since 2011, since they got humiliated in that national title game. They have scored mostly zero points in a lot of these matchups. But I thought that Coach O, after the game, we thought it was just Coach o. kind of the on-field stuff that was really driving this. But he told Ross Dellinger of Sports Illustrated at Ogeron, said, I might get to go to a 7-Eleven and get me a monster Red Bull without people saying, gotta beat those guys while I beat him. Coach Ed Ogeron will now be able to go to a 7-Eleven while getting his Red Bull and not be harassed. Like, that is a strong, strong motivator. It's practically a knighthood in Louisiana (laughs) to go to a convenience store and leave unharassed and at peace. That seems to me to be the bare minimum of citizenship in the state of Louisiana. And yet poor Ed Ogeron paid millions of dollars to get harassed at the 7-Eleven, which I would happily do, by the way, right? If you're going to pay me $3 million and one of the job requirements is I have to have a thick skin when I encounter service people, that's fine. On the other hand, if you can get paid five or six million because you've done well and not get harassed at the 7-Eleven, Win-win. The LSU job has unique benefits and unique drawbacks. And one of the unique benefits is I think that beating Alabama is going to give him a little more peace and a longer term of that peace than it would for, say, the coach at Alabama or Auburn. I think you get a longer leash there, particularly in a state where, I mean, do you think Sean Payton's ever going to get fired from the Saints? No, he leaves when he wants to. They, They can have like five or six losing seasons in a row and they might go, I don't know, man. Sean's kind of lost his edge a little bit, you know? I think Ed is probably on a different scale, but it's going to be like that for him. It's a big deal. Like, I know that people say, oh, you know, like, you know, that's that's something. But how about the playoff? I don't care about the playoff. And frankly, I don't know how many other people do, right? They want to... The, the playoff is still largely a construction of TV that's used as a bragging point, right? It's not what people really care about, you know, in their heart and soul when they decide to roll up on Thursday and show up for an LSU tailgate. And yeah, they're going to show up on Thursday sometimes, maybe sometimes Wednesday. I do know one person who showed up on a Wednesday. This is a massive deal. It is a massive deal for them, an absolutely massive deal. Yeah, the level of post-game insincerity with the we're taking it one day at a time, we got to beat Ole Miss next week. It was was epic levels of, uh, of, of insincerity there. People forget, Stefan. People forget. LSU won nine of 12 games. In this series between 2000 and 2011, some of those while Nick Saban was coaching LSU, some of them while Nick Saban was coaching Alabama, it encompassed both. But Les Miles was doing well against Alabama for a minute. And the difference in this series was that Nick Saban and Alabama realized that in order to win in college football in this century, you need to have a good passing game and a spread offense. Les Miles was like still thought that he had Jacob Hester on the roster for at least 10 years after Jacob Hester graduated. And Saban modernized first. Miles didn't. LSU fell way behind. And, you know, what it took for them to catch up was for Ed Ogeron, who I think people caricatured as being from not this century, a different different century, recognized that we have all this talent, we have all this skill, all these skill position players. Let's, like, get a coach 
who knows about the forward pass. Let's get a transfer who knows how to throw the forward pass. And that seems like it's all it took is LSU deciding that they wanted to be good on offense, which makes the other losses kind of retroactively frustrating. But I'm not mad. No, not mad at all. (laughs) It only took him seven years. What, six or seven years to change what they do. There are a couple of lessons in here. One is that it is very rare for coaches to change what they do and for football programs to change what they do. It really is. And one precedent for this comes from Pete Carroll at USC, who has spoken pretty openly about changing everything that he did and the way that they did things going into that job. And it turned his entire career around. And Ed Ogeron, when he was at Ole Miss, in a wildly unsuccessful tenure at Ole Miss, he's not alone in that, but it should be noted, was a hard ass, was a guy who was the disciplinarian, was the guy who, you know, challenged everyone to fight him in the locker room shirtless. I'm not making that up, by the way. Don't ever think that I've told a joke. He really did that, you know, yelling wild boys and asking everyone else to take their shirts off and get stomping so he could get the program motivated and hype. Um, that was that was his approach, and it was miserable. So he went out to USC and suddenly became kind of a player's coach, right? Just, hey, you guys, you guys did well. I have Popeyes waiting for you in the locker room, right? You guys... You guys had a good practice. Here's some cookies. A gentler, <laughs> a kinder and gentler Ed Ogeron. One of the funniest things. A kinder, gentler Ed Ogeron now punches himself in the face repeatedly before games as a motivational uh-huh. tactic. It's it's all about context. This is kinder and gentler for him. Yeah. He's growing into his voice, too. He's terrifying if you've never really listened to Ed Ogeron. Like if you were teleported to Tuscaloosa on Saturday and dropped into that locker room, that's a scary scene, man. Imagine him whispering. That is my challenge is what what does it sound like when Ed Ogeron whispers? It probably sounds a lot like the rock monster and the never ending story. It's got to be the weirdest, most disconcerting sound, because if he sound you heard the clip. The difference now is, by the way, he cusses in the other people's direction, not at, you know, his coaches or players. So not that much has changed. He's just redirected that. Mm-hmm. He also if you want to know, like the craziest fact about him that at his age, I believe he's 56 or in that neighborhood, he still squats 315 for sets and then goes for like a two or three mile jog after that. Yeah, he's not human. We say that about people in sports all the time, you know, at the managerial or playing level that they're not human. But that's what Ed Ogeron does. And he he doesn't have to do that, y'all. It's not part of the job description. Can I ask a football question? Please. Please. One team scored 46 points. One team scored 41 points. Those are a lot of points to give up for the other team. Are their defenses just not good enough? Or is it just that Joe Burrow is a NFL quarterback right now and Tua playing on a surgically repaired, probably inadvisably playing? He's a warrior, Stefan. That seemed pretty dumb that he played, but whatever. Um, Still managed to throw for a lot of yards and a lot of touchdowns in this game. Are these just the two best teams in college football and defense be damned? Or does this sort of harbinger some problems in the next five games? Did you use harbinger as a verb? I I like. I like it. I will say this. This Alabama defense is not a traditional Alabama defense. They've had a bunch of injuries. Dylan Moses, who spurned LSU in a recruiting battle and has become one of Alabama's best defenders. He is out for the year. They have a bunch of other dudes out for the year. They have a bunch of freshmen starting. Usually you can like plug and play those guys. And even if they're like 18, they're still making like 25 tackles a game. But this Alabama defense just isn't super duper great. And this LSU offense is... Amazing. Um, Joe Burrow comes into the game 
like if if the season ended now, he would have the NCAA record for highest completion percentage in a season, and he bested that against Alabama. He's basically a professional quarterback right. in that he transferred to LSU as a grad transfer. He does not go to school, essentially. He takes like a couple online classes, and so he's just studying film all day long in addition to being awesome at playing quarterback. And so he's going to pick these guys apart. And then on the Alabama side, yeah, they've got like the best set of receivers ever in human history and one of the best quarterbacks. So these defenses have no chance. Yeah, this is just one year, I think, where the sliders are all skewed towards offense. I think because of the way that that Alabama has had to recruit, you know, they just ended up with this glut of insanely talented wideouts, one of whom, Devontae Smith, was matched up for much of the game on a freshman on LSU's defense. And we're praising the management skills of the LSU staff. I don't know, man, you were playing man press with a pretty slim lead late in the game against the most dangerous wide receivers in college football. And a still deadly Tua Tagovailoa playing on one leg. And you played man press with the freshman. Go off, Dave Aranda. <laughs> that was Go a heat off. check. That was a heat check. <laughs> I don't know, man. That was a heat check. And guess what? You got burned. That was 85 <laughs> yards with like a minute left in the game. Because Devontae Smith can run very, very quickly. And your guy is not quite as fast as as he is. Also, I kind of think what they did was a, like a hilarious strategic thing that I hope somebody points out on TV, which is, they're very deep at wide out, and I think they just decided, hey, man, someone's going to have a bad night. It's you, kid. It's you. Like, that's it. We're going to have – somebody's going to have a bad night. Somebody's going to have a receiver who just embarrasses them all night. It's going to be you. But I, I think uh, Alabama's lost defensive linemen to the draft. Their next wave of monsters is still on the way. But this is a permanent shift because if LSU is putting their skill players, who have forever been lauded as all being running backs in disguise, right – that's the thing with LSU is that their skill players have always been ridiculous. They've been strong. They can break tackles. They, you know, they are all outrageously athletic and they all end up in the NFL putting up numbers that they've never dreamed of putting up at LSU because of the way things have been run on offense there. That's over. It's not like you're going to see OBJ come out, you know, the next OBJ come out in the draft and go, well, man, what were they doing with him in college? No, man, Jamar Chase gets all the chances he wants one on one. And you, you pair that with Joe Burrow. Go look, by the way, at the jump in his numbers and what he has been asked to do. And go look at the variation between what his completion percentage was last year and what he's done this year. And the fact that a lot of those completions, they're not the sort of like cheapy screens and like lateral stuff where you get high completion. You know what I will call the Tim Couch factor, right? Where you go, wow, this guy's like completing 80 percent of his passes. And you go, well, most of them went about five yards, like five yards that way, not forward. No, J Joe Burrow has just been it's unreal. It's statistically aberrant what he's managed to do. One thing that's very weird with this Alabama team, by the way, is this. They're only hitting home runs. They're not getting a whole lot of, of like pole to pole production in terms of moving the chains with the run game, which I know has to drive Nick Saban crazy. Najee Harris is really, really good. Um, and those receivers are really, really good. They are incredibly hard to stop offensively. Like you have to cover maybe a first round NFL guy with your fifth corner. It's it's it should be illegal. But Alabama just did some dumb stuff in the first half of the game to uh, drop the ball. Nobody hit him. 
uh, the punter dropped the ball. Nobody hit him. And LSU made like one good defensive play where Patrick Queen dropped into coverage and intercepted a two and they got an extra touchdown in the last 10 seconds of the half. And that's really what won the game. It just came down to which team made mistakes that were not really caused by the other team. Not that yeah. uh, not that I particularly care that that was the case, but you know that was the deciding factor. There's one cool thing to point out here too. There's a strategic thing that happens at the NFL as well at that level, which is their leading receiver, LSU's leading receiver, and the guy who touched the ball the most, both in rushing and in terms of the passing game, was Clyde Edwards Hilaire, the running back. What Nick Saban has had to do defensively is play out of nickel. So putting five defensive backs on the field, which is a lighter look. Okay, cool. If you're going to go five or even six defensive backs as a common thing we see, then I'm going to take a very stocky, fast, and mean guy with hands, and I'm going to put him in the pass passing game as either my outlet or as a primary receiver on every single play. What does that mean? That means that somebody who is lighter than a linebacker, that who Alabama doesn't have anyway, they're a little thin at linebacker this year, which is shocking for them. You're going to have somebody who's basically a nickelback going up against a guy who is 215 pounds of rock-solid malice with the ball. And that's not going to go well. You saw, by the way, Clyde Edwards-Elair breaking tackles and throwing people off. That's not because, you know, Clyde Edwards Hilaire is all of a sudden bigger than he was. The guys he's facing are like marginally smaller because they have to cover all of those wideouts that, you know, by formation. So that's just like one little chess piece that I thought was like really cool to watch the whole time that, you know, it goes across all football at this point. Congrats to everybody on LSU's win. Do we want to not see Alabama play LSU in the college football playoff? And is there a, a genuine threat that Alabama won't be in the top four, assuming everybody wins out? Because Alabama ain't playing in the SEC championship game in all likelihood. Is there a risk here? And is that bad for college football? Or are you happy to take your win over Alabama and and just leave it at that? I'll uh, let Spencer field this because any kind of flashbacks from 2011 would just cause me to start screaming, which we don't want on our air. The ratings would probably be really good for that. So the committee would 100% be in favor of seeing an LSU-Alabama rematch. However, I don't want to see it. You know, just from a personal bias, I don't really care to watch that game again because I think the results will be pretty similar. I don't think that Alabama can move their personnel into a position that's going to yield results which are dramatically different. I also think that there are going to be a number of teams who are going to have a better claim on that than Alabama. And I think there is like some fatigue because there's enough of a data set, there's enough of a recent memory of Alabama making the title game despite not being a conference champion. We're going to get a logjam, most likely going to get a logjam this year of teams with really, really good, strong cases that are, I think, topped by a conference championship game. Conference championship games do not exist to decide one team's position in the national hierarchy because there is no system of determining who gets into the top five or six slots in college football. There's no organized way of doing it. We just kind of eyeball it at the end and come up with ever more elaborate solutions on how that eyeballing is done. I don't think, when push comes to shove, that a conference champion is going to be denied, especially if it happens to beat the Big Ten champion or if it happens to be uh, the ACC champion. Clemson will likely go undefeated. Ohio State will likely go undefeated. LSU will go undefeated. There is a good chance that you could get 
a strong one loss team there who is really, really going to have like, what What if Oklahoma is sitting there? Do you tell them no? Is that how it goes so you can let Alabama in? What if they've got the conference championship in hand? What if they're still standing there with one loss? Do you tell them one loss because they lost to Kansas State? But do you tell them no? I don't think you do. I think Oklahoma gets in over Alabama at this point. You could tell the exact same story and just say the only thing that needs to happen for Alabama to get in is for like Oklahoma to lose another time. And then, yeah, they're not going to get in over Big Ten Champ or over Clemson, but uh, there's another spot. And I don't know if Oregon, who lost to Auburn, is going to get in over Alabama and, and, you know, Pac-12 Champ might have two losses, too. It's just, you know— Right on time, Gary Danielson, as soon as LSU gets the clinching first down, like the clock doesn't even go down to zero. And he's already talking about how Alabama should get into the playoff. It's not even talking about LSU, talking about Alabama. Heather Denich, the like ESPN uh, college football prognosticator, is saying she thinks Alabama's done. Come on, get real, dude. Like there is no universe in which Alabama's done. They're going to be in that four slot. They're going to lock down that four slot. I'm telling you right now. We're all in the most dangerous position in SEC football strategy, which is depending on Auburn. (laughs) This is where everyone is at. If they say, I really want some clarity in a playoff race, I need there to be an actual obvious choice for the four slot. And in order for that to happen, I need Auburn to do something predictable, right? I need them. I, I need them to beat Alabama. Good luck. The entire history of Auburn is being either wildly underrated or overrated with no warning about which one they're going to be. All right. One last thing, Spencer. Donald Trump trying to get his Nixon at Texas, Arkansas in 1969 moment. You had a few students standing up with shirts that spelled impeach. A lot more people who did the opposite of that. What do you think of Trump's move to try to ride the wave of Southern football? He showed up and they lost. That's all anyone should remember. (laughs) That's all anyone should remember about this whole thing. He inconvenienced everybody, probably made Nick Saban infuriated at even a minor inconvenience of his schedule, and Alabama lost. Your 31-game home winning streak came to an end on the same day that Donald Trump showed up at your door. Just remember that. I don't really... I can't tell you how to live your life. I can only point out correlations. Maybe a preview of 2020. Lost by five points on the scoreboard. Probably won the Electoral College, though. Spencer Hall, Banner Society, thank you for being here and reveling with us. Oh, my pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. It is hard now to understand the point or purpose of the NCAA, which operates less out of a devotion to the welfare of student athletes or even the generation of billions of dollars off of their literal sweat than it does the maintenance of a Rube Goldberg bureaucracy grounded in an 11 billion page book of picayune rules. If you search for 10 seconds, you'll find numerous examples just this last week of the college sports organizing body making seemingly 
random decisions about whether kids can or cannot play sports for the universities they attend. The attempts to sideline football player Chase Young of Ohio State and basketball player James Wiseman of Memphis among, if not the most highly rated prospects in their respective sports for what appear to be banal financial transactions are just the most prominent illustrations of the NCAA's increasingly desperate Oz-like behavior as it defends itself against attacks on its very existence in courtrooms and state legislatures. Slate staff writer Joel Anderson is here. He is the host of season three of Slate's podcast series, Slow Burn, about the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G., which is amazing. He also used to cover college sports for ESPN. What's up, Joel? Hey, what's up, Stefan? I'm good. Thanks for joining us, and congrats on the podcast. Thank you very much. I know somebody that's been assisting me much in the way that CP3 used to assist Tyson Chandler on this. It's on this podcast, but I'm not going to say who it is, but he's been very helpful in uh, putting us all together. We'll we'll just say that by by process of elimination. (laughs) It's not me. Uh, But the podcast is great. I concur with my co-host. Listen. Yeah, do listen. All right, so I did a pretty broad, splenetic introduction there, but let's focus on Chase Young and James Wiseman. Really simplified backgrounds. Young accepted a loan, which he paid back from a family friend so that his family could attend last season's Rose Bowl. Wiseman's mother accepted moving expenses from a high school assistant coach, former NBA star Penny Hardaway, who would later be hired as head coach at Memphis and recruit Wiseman to the school. Joel, broadly, what are the connections that you're seeing in these two cases? Well, I guess when I think about this, like just stepping back from it all, what does any of this have to do with the academic experience? Like, what does any of this have to do with college or college? You know what I mean? Theoretically, college sports are supposed to be a diversion on a college campus. It's not supposed to be a separate entity. It's supposed to be integrated roughly into the college experience. And I'm just wondering, what other student on campus couldn't call in a favor to a family friend? What other student on campus could not, you know, if they were in some sort of dire financial straits, have their mom reach out and say, hey, look, I need some moving expenses or I would like for my girlfriend to come visit me or, hey, I would like to wear a suit to a Heisman ceremony, you know, whatever. Like, I mean, what does any of this have to do with college? And it's just really unseemly that the idea that when these financial transactions that are alleged to have happened between James Wiseman and Chase Young, people who weren't even under the auspices of the NCAA, they have to establish like all these different things. They have to turn over their lives to show, hey, look, I knew this person at this certain time. This is what this money was for. This is the circumstances that I had to ask, you know, ask for the money. I mean, this doesn't make any sense to me. And it's just really, it's just really ugly and really nasty that people's lives are being thrown open like this to, to determine eligibility it doesn't have anything to do with school. That's kind of what I always come back to. Our colleague, Ben Mathis Lilly, when we were talking about this news, Joel, uh, I think put it aptly when he said, NCAA reaching out of the grave to be annoying. (laughs) (laughs) The thing that's so funny to me is that the NCAA and its model are, if not dead, dying. And rather than try to save itself by adapting to the growing consensus of everyone in the world that rule enforcement like this is backward and wrong, um, they just seem to be going along like business as usual. They're doubling down even. Yeah. And 
Wiseman and Young are two of the best prospects. Two potential number one picks right. in the NBA and NFL. Yeah, they're respectively possibly the best college basketball and college football prospects in the country, yes. And so you would think that an organization that was focused on self-preservation would want to accommodate these talents and maybe look the other way or, you know, not even look the other way, say, this is fine. Right. Um, and yet... <laughs> The NCAA has done the exact opposite, and this seems like it'll only accelerate, to me, the eventual destruction of the NCAA. Right. That's what's so ironic about this, is that the NCAA thinks that it's doing right by its members, by the universities, by its rule book, when in fact all it's doing is accelerating the antagonism that the general public and people who can maybe do something about this— state legislatures and the courts, as I said in the intro, it's increasing the antagonism that they are going to have toward the NCA. And the NCA is always, I think, assumed that the general public is behind it because, oh, we can't have shady recruiting and, oh, we can't have kids on the take. We need to make sure that all of our rules are enforced and these rules are important to maintaining the integrity of the institution, of amateurism. And more and more people are recognizing that this is a farce. Well, the Chase Young thing in particular, Joel, seems perfectly calibrated to demonstrate the moral bankruptcy of these NCAA rules because it's not just the small dollar amount. It's not just the fact that Chase Young paid back the money for the ticket. It's the fact that he did this so that his family could see him play a football game. Right. And he didn't have the money to do that. And so what the NCAA wants us to believe in order for us to think that this is a fair and just decision is that players shouldn't just have a right to have their families watch them play in a bowl game, that it's wrong for them to want that if they can't afford it. And so, you know, this feels like a classic example of winning the battle to lose the war, except they're not even going to win the battle. Right, right. right. Yeah, I mean, under what circumstances could, I guess I would like to know, right? Um, Because Chase Young happens to be good at football and because he happens to play for a high-profile program, but he still has a family. He still has obligations back home in Maryland. Like, let's just say that. And if he needed money, if somebody in his family needed money, under what circumstances could they get money that would be okay with the NCAA. That's and that just question. seems, that's really disgusting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the, the fact that like, if, if she needed help with the light bill or she needed help, you know, her car broke down and she lives in a place that doesn't have public transit, where could she get help? The NCAA is saying, anybody willing to step in and help you under these circumstances is suspect. And that relationship is suspect. And it just doesn't feel like the NCAA should be able to have the right to tell people that no, you know, you can only stay broke. <laughs> you could the, your option is that you can only stay broke and the thing is is that they only do this with certain players from certain backgrounds if you come from an affluent background if you already come from money then they're not going to question you on that. You know, they'll just say, okay, well, it's fine. Johnny Manziel shows up at a Mavericks game front row seat. Right. That's fine because he's rich already. You know, the narrow irony in the Chase Young story is that if Ohio State had been playing in the college football playoff and not in the Rose Bowl, his parents' expenses or his family's expenses would have been covered to attend the game because there is a special fund in the college football um, uh, playoffs. How generous. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So maybe it's just Ohio State's fault for not being good enough to make the playoffs <laughs> right. last year. Clearly. 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, they only lost one game last year too, right? Was it the Purdue game? So I guess that, yeah, <laughs> they lost one game. And as a result, now all this, this nonsense has happened. Yeah, man, I just think it's, why would the NCAA, like in a time when, you're, you're right, public sentiment is changing. Why would you antagonize these people? And why, also, we want to see these people play. Don't they want Chase Young to play? Don't they want James Wiseman to play? And it just seems like this is antithetical to their own survival. And, you know, as Dan Wetzel pointed out in a column in Yahoo, coaches can coach when they're under investigation. Players can't play. And so what Memphis is doing, if we want to transition to that story, is, you know, considered to be openly antagonistic to the NCAA now. Which is that Wiseman played. Yeah, Wiseman played. And there's a lawsuit been filed. They said, you're telling us that he's not eligible. Well, screw you. We're going to play him (laughs) anyway. We're going to get a temporary restraining order. And, you know, we'll sort this out later, but we're not going to presume he's guilty and have him sit out. And Memphis is risking its season, its eligibility for for the postseason. Um, Penny Hardaway, the coach, you wrote a profile about him for ESPN, Joel. Um, he has assembled this unbelievable recruiting class, better even than any of the classes that John Calipari put together when he was at Memphis. And they seem to be, you know, going with the approach of direct confrontation and unwillingness to accede. And you know what Wiseman is accused of here, and not even really what Wiseman is accused of, it's his his family got these moving expenses from Penny Hardaway. Um, Wiseman reportedly didn't know about it. It is like a, a lot shadier <laughs> than what Chase Young did. I mean, the coach of the team currently gave uh, like five figure sum to the mother of the star player. Now, there are all sorts of like circumstances. Hardaway wasn't the coach back then. Wiseman was just a, a kid. Hardaway was the assistant coach for the high school. And of course, he was recruiting him to come play for his high school. And maybe, who knows, maybe, and you would know this better than either of us would, Joel, maybe Hardaway figured I'm going to be the coach at Memphis in a year's time. But even if that were the case, that's about intent and supposition, and that's not what we're talking about here. And what they're dinging, well, my point, James Wise. My point for, is, who cares? Obviously. Right. My point is, yeah. who cares too? And it's like, if you want to drill down into the absurdity of the NCAA's actions here, it's not just that his family got moving expenses; is it's that Penny Hardaway is considered a booster for the mm-hmm. for Memphis because. 11 years ago, he gave a million dollars to the university to build, what was it, a Hall of Fame or athletic yeah. center? Right. A um, Hall of Fame that's basically a monument to his his career, too, by the way. Right. <laughs> you know? And as I've read it in some places, it wasn't a donation to the athletic department. It was a donation to the university. So if you want to start splitting hairs about these rules, Hardaway might not have even broken any rules. He should not be considered a booster in perpetuity. That's fucking ridiculous. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that Penny was always going to challenge the current college coaching paradigm, right? But, you know. Other hires in this vein, Clyde Drexler, Chris Mullen, Patrick Ewing, those are dudes that parachuted in from the NBA or, the, you know, they worked their way up the bench until they got to the top seat, right? But with Penny, like, this is a very much a professional play. Like, he's hired NBA guys. The school president is like, hey, I'm totally cool with them selling 
recruits on the idea that I can get you to the NBA. He was the first guy to get somebody to decommit from Kentucky. So he is like a direct challenge to what the system has always been in terms of what coaches are allowed to do Mm -hmm. and who they've been. He's a product of grassroots basketball culture, which everybody is always suspicious about anyway. That's where he got his footing in coaching and in the game right now. So it was inevitable that Penny was going to end up here one way or another. If it wasn't James Wiseman, it was always going to be somebody else because people have always been whispering about this the whole way. And in fact, I mean, Tennessee, Tennessee's, you know, high school sports governing association. I mean, this was a battle they fought over James Wiseman's ineligibility in high school. Right. So there's nothing new here. The issue is like, are they going to allow college coaching to be like this? Are they going to allow it to be such a naked play for professionalism? And I think that's what the NCAA is like really scared of that. If they don't take on Penny here, if they don't stand up here, then basically, I mean, the farce is exposed. Yeah, I think that that's the difference between the Wiseman and the Young things. Like the Young case is just one that exposes these rules as being anti-player and just like a way that people who even are kind of sticklers and believe in amateurism can see that the NCAA goes too far. But with Hardaway and, and Wiseman in Memphis, I think people who are more traditionalists and fans of college sports will look at this and say like, this is this is wrong. Like this is a guy who um, is giving money to a star recruit. He's now coaching the player. Like as you said, Joel. Like if you believe in the ideals of amateurism and that players shouldn't be paid until they're in the NBA, you're going to say like what Memphis is doing is bad, and the NCAA should stand up. Now I don't think any of us agree with that, but it just seems like a more clear cut case where like if the NCAA exists in its current form, like they should be penalizing Memphis and James Wiseman. I guess. Um, I think the the way the institutions are approaching this bears a little more conversation because what Ohio State is doing here is they're basically capitulating to the NCAA and saying, you know, these rules are a nuisance, but hey, we understand that they exist. We'll take the four-game suspension. Oh, it won't be four games. It's going to be less than that, and it'll be against Maryland and Rutgers, so they have no chance of losing. It doesn't matter. (laughs) No, he played. Oh, he didn't didn't play against Maryland, right, Right. on Saturday was Maryland, yeah. Right, so so Ohio State is saying this is the cost of doing business, and Mm -hmm. we are business partners with the NCAA. Memphis is taking a much more John Calipari like approach here and saying, fuck the system. The system is wrong. Our goal here is to nurture the best basketball players and get them to the NBA, giving the mother of a kid 10 grand or 11 grand so that they could move to my town because I want him to play for me in high school is not something that we think is a, should be considered problematic. Also, their goal is to win lots of games and make money. Absolutely. Right. College football and college basketball are really different in that way too, right? College football, you're much more inclined to play ball with the NCAA because it's like, well, you know, these, these kids are further away from you know, being able to officially cash in on their talents. Yeah. College basketball is a way station, man. And so like you have, I think there has to be so much more wheeling and dealing to get these kids in and out of school and all the right. arrangements made between shoe companies. So it's, it's different. I mean, just think about it, man. I mean, LSU didn't fire Will Wade last year. You know what I mean? Like Sean Miller's name came up multiple times in a federal investigation, he did not lose his job. So did Bill Self. College basketball is just fundamentally different in this way. And so it's not, I mean, Penny Penny does kind of represent a departure uh, in terms of like the way that they're def- they're defending him and challenging the NCAA. But college basketball programs have already sort of been 
you know, veering off from that model that uh, the NCAA wants you to believe exists. It's always a good idea if there are major allegations to go on the offensive. I think Ohio State, this is like kind of small bore stuff so they can just go along. But like with North Carolina, when they had that whole department set up of like fake classes, the NCAA didn't end up punishing them really at all because North Carolina was just so defiant and, you know, wouldn't capitulate or cooperate at all. And then with Missouri, where there was just like, you know, the the allegations of academic impropriety were so much less than they were in North Carolina. Like Missouri self-reports, they're like, oh, we're so sorry. Like we're we're going to show you how, you know, in control we are as an institution. They get like scholarship reductions and a postseason ban. And there's no incentive to right. go along. And especially, Joel, because of where public sentiment is, I think – you're not going to pay much of a penalty if you're perceived as like going rogue and battling against the NCA or to the extent that you do pay a penalty, it's going to be less severe than like the acclamation you receive and the on-court success you're going to have. Bottom line is too, the NCA needs Memphis. They need North Carolina. They need those basketball programs to be good, you know? And so in that way, you can understand that those schools understand that, hey, look, man, if we're down, if you punish us, if we take scholarships away from us and try to cripple our program you're only hurting yourself so why not fight and the the potential outcome here is interesting mark giannato uh the columnist in uh, for the memphis commercial appeal and it, he had a piece over the weekend that talks about the language that the lawyers for james wiseman are using in their case the allegation that they're making is that, and I'll just quote it, defendant NCAA acted intentionally and with malice in this regard, meaning that they said that James Wiseman was eligible when he was recruited and signed to play at Memphis. Mm -hmm. Now they're saying he's ineligible. On what grounds? There's no new information here. Well, because he could have done the like Darius Baisley like get an internship at New Balance uh, approach, mm. and that way he got a shoe deal. He could have done the Lamelo Ball, RJ Hampton, yep. go to art, uh, go to Australia approach. He could have gone straight to the G League. So there are the NCAA did um, interfere with Wiseman's ability to make money because if they had ruled him ineligible, he just wouldn't have gone to school. The NCAA right. should be so grateful that James Wiseman is good. Going to college? Oh, God. Um, yes. Because, Joel, like you were saying, I was interested in watching college basketball this year because of him, and now you're less interested. Right. First of all, college basketball kind of snuck up on us. I was like, oh, wow, it's already season. And then I was like, oh, James Wiseman's playing. That's great. Because, uh, you know, we're kind of coming off that Zion high. And mm -hmm. so I was like, who is going to replace Zion Williamson and make college basketball interesting? Now you have James Wiseman, and they're trying to take him away? I mean, this doesn't make a lot of sense. They should be, like you said, they should be extremely grateful that he decided to spend a semester in college. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, there's plenty of other options. Nothing he could really do would affect his draft status. I mean, you think about it, There was a guy, how, who was that guy that went to West, who was supposed to go to Western Kentucky and ended up with the Knicks? He didn't play his... Mitchell Robinson. Mitchell Robinson. Mitchell Robinson didn't even play in college. He didn't play basketball for a year and still got drafted in the first round. And, like, that's what the NCAA should be worried about, that guys are just going to realize, well, why the hell am I even bothering with this? Like, I could just take all the money I need until it's time to go to college, you know? Or you need $11,000 yeah. to move? We'll give you $20,000. Yeah, right. The NCAA, we help you move.
<laughs> Joel Anderson is the host of season three of Slate's series, Slow Burn. It's about the murders of Tupac Shakur and the notorious B.I.G. Joel, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Always fun. Thanks for having me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members... We'll be talking to Lindsey Krauss of the New York Times. We're about to do a segment with Lindsey Krauss about Mary Kane and her allegations against Nike, the Oregon Project, and Alberto Salazar. In the bonus segment, we're going to talk about an earlier series that Lindsey did for the New York Times about maternity, pregnancy, and again, Nike. That series was great. It had dramatic effects and excited to talk to Lindsey about that. If you want to hear it, you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. In 2014, after finishing high school, middle distance running prodigy Mary Kane moved to Oregon to join Nike's exclusive training program headed by Alberto Salazar. Ten months later, she abandoned the Nike Oregon project and returned home. By 2016, she had severed ties with Salazar and stopped competing entirely. Last week, in an extraordinary video published by the New York Times, Kane described her time with Salazar and Nike as an elite athlete hell. She said she was forced by an all-male coaching staff to lose weight, publicly shamed for not losing enough weight. She stopped menstruating and, as a result of low estrogen levels, broke five bones. Let's listen to a clip. I felt so scared. I felt so alone. And I felt so trapped. And I started to have suicidal thoughts. Um, I started to cut myself. Some people saw me cutting myself. And... Uh, sorry. Um, n- nobody really did anything or said anything. Lindsay Krauss is a senior editor and producer in the Opinions Department of the New York Times. She produced the video about Mary Kane. Thank you for joining us, Lindsay. Thanks so much for having me. All right. For those who aren't familiar with Mary Kane's story, why don't we start with how good she was and how she wound up moving to Portland as a teenager to train with Alberto Salazar? So Mary was absolutely the best distance runner in the country at the time. She's part of a movement of high school girls that are getting better and faster than ever, but she was by far the standout and for that got a lot of attention at the time. Um, People were really, really excited about her ascent. She was racing against professionals at an incredibly young age as a teenager. And because of that, because of the halo on her, caught the attention of the greatest coach in the world at the greatest company in the world for track Alberto Salazar at Nike. And so she got an offer to actually skip the NCAA and um, turn professional as a teenager, which is, I'm not sure if it was unprecedented at the time, but extremely unusual. She was first coached by him remotely and then moved out there. And it was supposed to be the opportunity of a lifetime for a teenager like that. One of the things that really stood out was this 
absolute fixation on her weight. You know, I was familiar with her story from when she was a prodigy and then looking in the video. This is an incredibly thin young woman. And to hear her talk about how she was constantly told that she was overweight is shocking. I mean, there are details that didn't make it into the piece. This is a girl who at age 17 was, I mean, I don't I don't know her height off the top of my head. Five foot seven. That's what I was going to guess. She said that her weight was vacillating between 118 pounds and 121 pounds. And I mean, it's sad to hear a young woman have to kind of recite her weight that um, you know, that easily and that publicly. Anyway, um, we didn't wind up putting it in the piece, but he was fixated on it being um, 114 pounds. And I think that's part of what really struck me is those numbers are so arbitrary. Um, you know, I hope, hopefully a lot of people don't actually weigh themselves every day. But if you do, you know that that number can change. And so the idea that for her, it was just supposed to constantly be at 114, which is just so close to 118 pounds, to me, that really got my attention and seemed very striking. At the same time, I think it's really important to focus on the idea that so many women and so many athletes, female and male athletes, go through this all the time, that it's incredibly normal. What what was wrenching to me about it was that um, oftentimes it's sort of in the athlete's the athlete is more in control of how far they want to take their relationship with these numbers. And in this case, this is a young girl having this actually imposed upon her and in ruining her health and her actual performance at the same time. Yeah, I think that's an important thing for for all of us to remember is that this isn't just you don't have to be training with, you know, a legend in the sport to feel these kinds of pressures. These happen at the high school level where girls particularly feel the strain of expectation and this belief that in order to run faster, I need to weigh less. Yeah, I mean, I had that happen to me. And so I think in that way, I really connected with Mary's story. This is happening to girls everywhere. And it's sort of this unspoken message that you know, as you're getting, as you're growing up and, you know, you're going through puberty, your body is changing. Like boys, for boys, they're bathing in testosterone. That's in a performance enhancer. For girls, they are growing estrogen. That makes you gain fat. Um, it, it's going to take a few years for your body to adjust to this. But there's this tendency for so many girls, especially girls in sports, and they're often encouraged to do this, but to try to fight those changes. I mean, a lot of stories of abuse that we hear. I mean, I naturally think about gymnastics. Um, of course. There's kind of a range. And sometimes the abuse goes along with girls and women who are extremely successful while the abuse is going on. Sometimes it, as you said, ruins their you know ability to perform as well as having physical and mental health consequences. And again, like another thing that's so disturbing about this is that the physical consequences and the lack of results on the track, everything seems to be pointing in the same direction, Lindsay. Like everything is going wrong and going bad. And rather than Nike and the coaches actually saying like, okay, let's put a pause on this and figure out like how we can turn things around. They just seem to blame the athlete for doing actually what she was told to do. Right. The things that were making Mary Kane have worse times on the track were the things that Nike was imposing on her. And Nike, rather than addressing it, you know, by by stepping away from those training methods, doubled down and blamed that for her weakening performances. 
I think you're raising two really, really important points. One is about who these girls are and how they got there in the first place. And it's important to remember that these are good girls. These are America's best girls. They are super high achievers. They're the ones that are getting to the spotlight in the first place in order to be kind of seized up by these coaches that therefore um, are going to perhaps exploit in some cases their obedient natures and um, you know, their willingness to do whatever it takes to be the best. Um, and these are girls that won't necessarily say no. At the same time, I think in Mary's case, it was actually a blessing for her that she was so young because so certain things, you know, she maybe hadn't been beaten down by certain systems yet or, you know, accepted certain you know, things that other people might take to be realities. And I think she was able to ultimately say no and get out of there. But it's important to remember that these girls are really good and they're willing to follow directions and they're willing to do whatever it takes to be excellent, to be perfect. And that's why we need systems out there to protect them. This is not just a Nike thing. This is happening all around the country, especially in girls sports. And that's why we need to fix them. The other important thing that I think you just raised is that so often, and this definitely happened to Mary, these these girls then fade from the scene when it fails them and fails to help them develop their athletic potential and they're discarded. And that's definitely what happened to her. She returned home to Bronxville. She went to college at Fordham and, you know, she's coaching at Mile High Run Club. This is a girl who's still who's only 23. She still has the potential to make the Olympics, but she has in many ways been discarded. She's unsponsored right now. Typically, we don't hear from girls like this afterwards. And I think that's what's really important about the reaction to her story is that we are hearing what happened to her. And hopefully that will help break this cycle. Yeah, it's a great point is that when you're in an Olympic sport, generally the only time that you have a platform is around the Olympics and if you succeed in the Olympics. And when that you know, is denied you, you're basically silenced and, and ignored. So that's great that you were able to highlight her story. And one of the things that's been really interesting to hear in the aftermath of this video being released is some athletes, um, you know, Kara Goucher, Amy Yoder Begley saying that similar things happened to them when they were um, working with Nike's Oregon Project. Shalane Flanagan, who won the New York City Marathon a couple years ago, said she actually didn't know that it was this bad and apologized to Mary Kane. Um, Lindsay, tell us, just kind of characterize the responses that you've been hearing and that Mary's been hearing. Sure. Well, I think um, we've just really heard a lot of support for Mary's story. Um, you know, people that maybe wouldn't have necessarily wanted to talk about it to begin with, feel more comfortable now. I mean, I think we certainly saw that with the maternity reporting that um, that we did that kind of goes along with this series and equal play. It's like once one person speaks up, women, and again, this is not just a Nike thing. This is professional runners. This is NCAA runners. This is high school runners. And um this is regular runners like me talking about, well, hopefully you get over this a little bit by the time you're older, but it's like, this is women in particular talking about this all over the country. But in terms of Nike, yeah, um, everyone that, um, that has spoken up has, um, reinforced her story. And I think it's also important to note that she had a lot of trouble actually talking about this there, the reporting structures, there was no HR for her to go to. It was really, as far as she's concerned, no one for her to go to. The sports psychologist sounds like he was reporting everything back um, to her coaches and it was potentially risking her career if she talked deeply about the challenges that she was facing. And I think that's important to note, again, not just 
from a um, from like a ethics perspective or a morality perspective, but also because this is bad for her career. It's counterproductive. We need more systems in place to kind of proactively help um, these girls because I think you know Shalane Flanagan has created a terrific culture from what it sounds like at at Nike, where um, it you know at the Bowerman team, which is different than Nike Oregon Project, which was sponsored by Salazar, and she's really um, trying to stop this kind of culture. But I don't think she knew. We should point out that Nike disbanded the Nike Oregon Project in October. But that had nothing to do with these these allegations by Mary Kane. It was because Salazar was found by the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency to have, to have violated anti-doping rules and was given a four-year suspension. Salazar has responded to the video, uh, Lindsay, by saying basically that we did nothing wrong. He kind of threw things back on Mary. Mary at times struggled to find and maintain her ideal performance and training weight. He said that he consulted with Mary's parents. No one raised any issues that she now suggests occurred while I was coaching her. And Nike also, in its statement, in which it said that it was going to investigate what was happening with the Oregon Project, it also pointed out that, quote, Mary was seeking to rejoin the Oregon Project and Alberto's team as recently as April, sort of victim shaming and not acknowledging that Mary Kane's pain she hadn't grappled with until Salazar was exposed and punished by the anti-doping agency. Yeah, I mean, I think all of that makes a lot of sense to me. I did not receive comment from Nike before this piece came out. They declined to comment, but I did receive feedback from Salazar. And, you know, he told me that anytime she was weighed in public, it was to prevent dehydration. You know, she says that she was doing like workouts of a mile. There was no dehydration because, um, uh, you know, you can lose weight in 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 training. Um, so basically there it was sort of like a, he had reasons why everything could have unfolded. He, he said he didn't know that she was cutting herself. She explained in detail the night, which he denies and which I have other sources backing up the night that she told him she'd been um, running at a track at um, an occidental meet in 2015. She had a bad race. He yelled at her afterwards for gaining weight. After that, they made her do another workout because she was too slow. She said she tried to purge and then she went up to his room with um, the sports psychologist and just really told them and told them that she was really worried about herself. And she was already starting to get so, you know, her, her training performances were already starting to struggle so much that she could tell they just didn't have the patience for her anymore and that they dismissed her. So all of that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I also think that Nike saying that she hadn't really raised the allegations publicly to them or to them before I have gone through what the chain of reporting would have been for her in terms of that. And I too don't know who she should have told or at what point. I think the person that she could have told, John Capriati, is the head of sports marketing and best friends with Salazar, it sounds like. So I and he's potentially undertaking this investigation. So um I think there's a lot of questions that continue to exist. I and I think a lot of them lie with Nike answering them. I'm looking forward to some of those answers. If we're thinking about solutions for this going forward, like thinking about the NBA and how players there are getting better access to mental health treatment, getting better um, access to the state of the art in terms of training and medical care 
And that's because they're independently wealthy and famous and they can, um, you know, they have a platform of their own. And so you're describing a situation where Mary Kane was famous for a high school runner, which is like orders of magnitude less famous than Zion Williamson. Yeah. We're talking about reforming a sport and a structure where the athletes are not going to be protected. They're not going to be financially independent and they're not going to have the the stature necessarily to, to come out and go after a Nike. So given all of that, what do you think the steps are to try to ensure that this doesn't happen? Frankly, some of the reporting that we've done around maternity and now kind of the risks to sort of, I guess, like extreme training tactics like weight loss um, that we've done in opinion video at this point, the reaction that we've gotten to them is so powerful that I think it's reassuring to athletes that they do have a place now to speak up for themselves. I think the first step is kind of a lot of these athletes that do make it to these levels accept everything that is in, you know, that's kind of laid out for them is, um, as gauntlets to clear because they're good at putting up with things. They're good at enduring, they're good at pain. Um, and they're able to stifle it. And I think you stifle it instead of questioning it. You've got to assume that that's what Mary was doing as she was on her path to trying to become an Olympian. So the first step is kind of stepping back just as athletes that went through pregnancy, even though they came back really quick and were champions again. Um, it's, it's kind of recognizing that, this may be legal, this may be part of the rules, but it's wrong. The rules weren't written for you. Maybe it's time to rewrite the rules. And that's what we're trying to at least give them the opportunity to do here at Opinion is like people may ignore your feelings about all this, um, but they can't deny your facts. And um, so we're just trying to help them get the facts out there, leave it to the court of public opinion. And that seems to be going really well. From there, I think it's just kind of showing that this is not acceptable anymore, these kind of legal, accepted, even normal things, and talking about how to change them. In the video, Mary Kane says, I got caught in a system designed by and for men, which destroys the bodies of young girls. Rather than force young girls to fend for themselves, we need to defend them. At its very root, what we're talking about here is an extreme power imbalance. You raised the, the NBA analogy, Josh, and you said that they have stature and money, and it's more than that. They're grown-ass men, and these are teenage girls, and I think you, you keep using the word girls, Lindsay, and that's appropriate because these are children. Mary Kane was a child when she was handed over to Alberto Salazar. Her parents trusted that he would train her in an ethically and medically and morally safe way. I think in the video, Mary says, we need more women coaching. And that's a start for sure. But inside these multi-billion dollar institutions like Nike, there has to be some reform. And I don't know whether that comes through prosecution or through firing or through you know, management and executive changes, or it just comes through a recognition that we are doing this wrong to these elite athletes. Yeah. I mean, I think you raise, again, two really, really interesting points. One is that I think he thought he was doing the right thing. I think he thought that he knew best for her. And as soon as he started to be kind of proven wrong, that maybe these race weights that he'd come up with weren't the right targets, that they were actually inhibiting his performance. I think the real problem here is that instead of changing and maybe um, doing something a little differently, he just kind of moved on from her. Um, 
And I think that actually happens a lot. Like we just blame the athlete for these things instead of blaming some of the approaches that they're being exposed to. And I think that's, um, that's probably one thing that needs to change. The other thing that really comes to mind is Nike really puts itself up. And this is why I pay a lot of attention to Nike as a promoter of women, as a promoter of female potential and talent in the athletic arena, which is something that our country really, our country and our world really needs. And they do really stand for that. When I was interviewing Allison Felix for the piece that we did about her own struggles with the company around maternity, she said a big part of why she joined that company was because of their um, campaign called The Girl Effect, where they were really advocating for girls and about how investing in girls improves the world, it lifts all of us up. And that was maybe like a decade ago, maybe a decade and a half ago, but I was you know, also just out of college and watching those ads too, and I really cared about it. And I wonder if the next step could be you know, instead of launching an investigation and, you know, firing people, which maybe that needs to happen too, but actually just like starting some real research around, there isn't a lot of research around women's athletic performance specifically. A lot of this research is done on men. And I think that's what's missing here. And maybe Nike as a multi-billion dollar company wants to really take a leadership role in that. I think that would be really powerful and a great correction to some of these stories that are coming out. And I think it's important, again, to remember that this is not just a Nike problem. This is not just an Alberto Salazar problem. This is something that unfolds all around the country at all different levels of sport when it comes to girls and women. Lindsay Krauss is a senior editor and producer in the Opinions Department of the New York Times. She produced the video of Mary Kane, which you should go watch. Lindsay, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And Lindsay, we're going to talk to you in our Slate Plus bonus segment about the series on maternity that you referenced. So looking forward to that conversation. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now it is time for Afterballs. Many segments ago, when we were talking about LSU and Alabama, I said that the 33 points that LSU scored in the first half against Bama on Saturday were more than they had scored in the whole game in 81 of the previous 83 games in the series. One of the games where they scored more than 33 was in 2007, when LSU won the national title, 41 to 34, Matt Flynn. 2001 was the other one. LSU beat Alabama 35-21. And the quarterback in that game was Rohan Davey. And this was the greatest passing performance ever in an LSU game, Stefan. He literally had 528 yards passing. Oh, literally. And there was a receiver in that game, Josh Reed, who went on to be a first-round NFL pick who had uh, 293 receiving yards. Rohan Davey was uh, such a fun 
player to watch. Did uh, he have a professional career? He was drafted by the Patriots. He did not have much of a professional career, if any. Um, but he was fun in college, and that's okay. Rohan Davey, we celebrate you on this joyous day. Stefan, was your Rohan Davey? Jason LaConfora of Yahoo reported over the weekend that Amazon founder Jeff Bezos is interested in buying an NFL team and the NFL is interested in having him buy one. The billionaire has apparently been getting palsy with various NFL owners and with Commissioner Roger Goodell. No teams appear to be for sale right now, but the Seahawks and the Broncos could be on the market after the deaths of their longtime owners, Paul Allen and Pat Bolin. The frisson of excitement here isn't that America's number one oligarch is looking to join America's number one oligarchical sports league. After all, NFL teams are so expensive at this point that there are few potential buyers. No, the frisson is that Amazon is opening a second headquarters outside of D.C. and Bezos is moving into a mansion on S Street for which he bought and is renovating for a total of at least $35 million. Now, let me pause here, Josh, to say that the spruced up place is to have, according to the Washington magazine, 25 bathrooms, five lounges, two elevators, and a sizable ballroom, plus 1,006 light fixtures, six dishwashers, and 48 smoke detectors, and four gas fireplaces, five bathtubs, five refrigerators, 31 bathroom basins, 12 kitchen sinks, 10 showers, and two urinals. Also two elevators. Former textile museum. Textile Museum represent, baby. So it follows that the NFL team that Beltway Bezos should own is the one with Washington in its name. A Bezos ownership would solve one problem, getting rid of the worst owner in professional sports, Dan Snyder. And it could solve another. Bezos owns the Washington Post, which under his ownership has editorialized that the football team's name is, quote, hurtful, offensive, degrading, and a racial slur, end quote, and should be changed. But one of the NFL owners Bezos has befriended apparently is Dan Snyder. Jason LaConfora's story says that Amazon's new office hub could help Snyder get a new stadium built inside the city because Amazon might be willing to sponsor it. That would really suck. So I'm going to invent a tastier scenario that Bezos is buttering up Goodell and Snyder to get intel so that he can pivot and make an offer that Goodell would force Snyder to not refuse. And Goodell should undertake this plan, not just to finally get the incompetent Snyder and his racist team name out of the league. He should do it for a third reason, to fuck with Donald Trump. First, Trump hates Bezos and the fake news lobbyist, Amazon Washington Post. He's threatened emptily to charge Amazon more in taxes, and he whines about the Post every time it reports facts about him and his tentacular corruptions. Second, Trump hates the NFL. Those tiresome ramblings about Kaepernick and unpatriotic kneeling SOBs and lies about ratings declines were rooted in one thing, his failed attempts to own an NFL team. Trump first tried in 1981 fronting a group that included former Washington head coach George Allen that offered $50 million for the Baltimore Colts. Colts owner Jim Ursay told him to pound sand. In 1983, Trump agreed to buy a USFL team but told NFL Commissioner Pete Rosell that he really wanted an NFL team. Roselle reportedly responded, as long as I or my heirs are involved in the NFL, you will never be a franchise owner in this league, end quote. 
Trump dragged the USFL into an antitrust lawsuit that ruined the league. In 2014, finally, he fell on his face trying to buy the Buffalo Bills. I looked up Trump's original NFL foray. Colts owner Jim Irsay confirmed the offer to a reporter for the Baltimore Evening Sun. Trump denied making the bid. Exactly what Trump does when he doesn't get his way. I have not given any offers for the team. Neither was I part of a group that did, he said. I'm sure that little lie endeared Trump to Roselle right away, as no doubt did other details in the story that definitely were not fed to the reporter by Trump himself, like some Fortune magazine bullshit numbers that said the Trump organization was worth more than a billion dollars, and the next paragraph in the story where Trump flexed his nascent tabloid ego urges. Trump, the Evening Sun wrote, will be one of six persons interviewed by columnist Rona Barrett on a July 24 television program titled The Super Rich. The NFL was never falling for any of Trump's bullshit, and it should drive the stake into his proverbial football heart one more time. Jeff Bezos should offer Dan Snyder $5 billion for his shitty football team, and he should do it right now. Josh, what's your Rohan Davy? On Monday afternoon, the Canadian television network Sportsnet fired Don Cherry for what it described as divisive remarks that do not represent our values or what we stand for. Those divisive remarks were broadcast during the 85-year-old Cherry's Coach's Corner segment on Saturday, which runs on the show Hockey Night in Canada. In that segment, he talked about how shameful it is that people don't wear poppies on Remembrance Day to commemorate the sacrifices of Canadian veterans. Actually, it's not that people don't wear poppies. It's that you people don't wear poppies, specifically the you people of Toronto with its large population of immigrants. Let's listen to Cherry's rant. You know, I was talking to a veteran. I said, I'm not going to run the poppy thing anymore because what's the sense? I live in Mississauga. Nobody wears, uh, uh, very few people wear uh, a poppy. Downtown Toronto, forget it, downtown Toronto. Nobody wears a poppy. And I'm not going to, he says, wait a minute. How about running it for the people that buy them? Now you go to the small cities and you know, you, you know, those, the rows on rows, you people love you, you, they come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you could pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. These guys pay for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys paid the, uh, the biggest price. The day after those comments aired, the star's Bruce Arthur wrote a piece headlined, It Really Should Be Game Over for Don Cherry This Time After Toxic You People Rant. I'll confess that when I saw that headline, I assumed that nothing was going to happen to Don Cherry. That's pretty clearly what Don Cherry assumed, too. In the video version of Cherry's rant, you can see Hockey Night in Canada host Ron McLean, who, like Cherry, is wearing a poppy on his lapel. He's good. He's got the poppy. Uh, McLean is just standing there mutely and nodding along. It was McLean, ultimately, who apologized, saying, Don made comments that were hurtful and prejudiced, and I wish I had handled myself differently. Cherry, for his part, told the Toronto Sun that he would not apologize and that he'd had his say. This has always been the pattern with Cherry, the one-time NHL Coach of the Year, slash Canadian National Treasure, slash Canadian National Embarrassment. He says something dumb or gross or offensive, and other people do the apologizing. The first reference that people usually cite about Cherry saying something controversial in the long lists of Cherry saying things that are controversial, uh, offensive, 
probably better word than controversial. Anyway, uh, he mocked a Finnish coach for the Winnipeg Jets. The coach's name was Alpo Suinen by saying, Alpo, isn't that a dog food? According to a 1990 article in the Montreal Gazette, this happened in 1989, Ron McLean, who was uh, as now, then the host of Hockey Night in Canada, turned to Cherry on Coach's Corner, gave Cherry a chance to apologize. I said no, Cherry said proudly, recounting the event. Although it's hard to summarize everything he said and done in his long tenure on the telly, Bruce Arthur's summary of Cherry is as good as any. Arthur writes that in 2007, Ron McLean said indigenous people felt they were not treated equally in Canada. Cherry said, fair shake. Why don't you go out and get your own fair shake in life and work for it? Don't give me that stuff. In 2013, Cherry said female journalists don't belong in locker rooms. And for over a decade, Arthur writes, Cherry has complained that climate change is a scam because winter still happens. Last month, Joe Pack wrote a piece for Vice headlined Don Cherry's Dangerous Legacy. In that piece, Pack asked a couple of rhetorical questions. Why, despite his many expressions of sexism, homophobia, and xenophobia, is he still tolerated? Why haven't major sponsors of Coach's Corner pulled their advertisements? And why does his outdated behavior continue to provoke mostly shoulder shrugs from some fans, media, and academics? Before Monday, I would have answered those questions by saying that Canadian broadcasting authorities have been afraid to call Don Cherry out because he's seen as speaking for the good white people of rural Canada. Maybe they've thought he's just an old guy who represents old-timey values. He loves fighting and hockey, for instance. We've got to respect our elders, even if they're idiots. But now, after decade upon decade of similar behavior, the institution of Don Cherry is no more, and I'm extremely surprised, I must say. This is a really huge thing and a sign that if you're a raging asshole for a very long time, maybe eventually at some point your bosses will figure out that you're not actually a load-bearing structure, that you're just an angry guy that doesn't need to be angry on TV every week until the sun burns out. So farewell, Don Cherry. Female journalists, they belong in hockey. You don't. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you perhaps would like even more hang up and listen. And our bonus segment this week, Lindsay Krauss in the New York Times, who we talked about in one of our segments this week. We'll be back. We'll chat with her about maternity policies, Nike, and what needs to change. You're not supposed to have a baby and be a competitive athlete in these situations. It's still kind of deeply discouraged. And contracts reflect that. I mean, obviously, it's really, really hard to do. And a company like Nike, but really anyone, kind of wants to protect their bottom line. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.